Hey, 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 what's up, what's up, what's up? It's your girl, Leah M. Forney. Hope all is well. Listen, I can't believe we are fastly approaching the month of September already. And so, you know, the month of September has such an amazing... meaning for several reasons one is the you know it's the ninth month right so what happens in nine months ladies we give birth right so it's the it's the month of get of birthing right but it's also a very important month because it is national recovery month and so national recovery month is the month that is about bringing awareness to addiction right um and so here at hey queen thrive I thought it would it was going to be an amazing idea to have a conversation about addiction. Um, many of you may or may not know, but I'm the daughter of two addicts, right? So my mom, she has battled with drug addiction since I was two years old. My father was an alcoholic and in and out of prison since I was nine, and he passed away due to complications from alcoholism, right? So National Recovery Month holds a space in my heart near and dear to my heart for that reason. But also when I got into the field of mental health, my very first job in the mental health sector was with um, substance use uh, clients. So (laughs) National Recovery Month has been around for many, many years, but it's also been something that um, I've kind of taken a part of, taken part in and supported um, throughout my career as a mental health professional. So I'm excited to have this conversation. This episode is going to be a heavy one. You know, unfortunately, addiction is something um, that is heavy in many, many families, right? Many, many families. And it doesn't discriminate, right? So I'm not even going to be like black and brown or whatever. It doesn't discriminate, right? And the thing that I have learned as a daughter of two addicts is that children of addiction um, tend to develop addictive behavior, right? So I tell people all the time, you know, I got addictive behavior, um, not just from substances. So let me say that, not just from substances, because um, for me, you know, I, I limit my drinking, right? Because I understand what what's in my bloodline, right? So my friends laugh when I say, I'm like a two drink maximum. My friends laugh when I say that because they're like, what? Maximum, (laughs) right? But I have to, I have to know my limits because again, I know what's in my bloodline, right? So, um, but then also again, addictive behavior can be other compulsive um, behaviors, right? So like hypersexuality could be an addictive behavior, right? Um, Shopping right? Splurging is all types of addictive behavior. You know, for me personally, I once battled with a sex addiction. People would never believe that. And if you read one of my books, I talked about it, right? After I got raped eight years ago, um, I went through that. I went through a phase of just constantly wanting to have sex. And I remember talking to my therapist about it because I thought it was weird. You know, I thought it was absolutely weird that that was my um, go-to after being raped. And I remember my therapist said to me that how common that was. You know, she was like, because you're trying to regain control over something that you didn't have control over. So I had to work through that, right? But then again, you tackle that on top of um, 
addiction and being born in addiction, right? Because I was also born a crack baby. That's what they used to call it back in the 80s, right? So I was born addicted to drugs, right? You tackle all of that, you easily get addictive behavior. So this episode's guest is somebody that's so near and dear to my heart. We call each other soul twins because we have come from very similar situations and similar upbringings, even though she's like a big sister to me, right? But it is none other than Dr. Mecca Marshall. And when I tell you this lady is doing amazing work, um, not just with um, the addictive addiction population, but the sexual assault population, like she is doing amazing, amazing work. And I'm so excited to sit down and talk to my sis about our journey and our story um, of being, you know, the children of addicts. So definitely stay tuned. You might learn something. Um, you might hear some amazing parts of these testimonies. And then of course, you know, I'll be back with Thriver Nuggets. What's up, my Hey Queen Thrive Beautiful family? Listen, I'm sitting down with somebody very near and dear to my heart. We call each other soul twins. It is the one and only Dr. Mecca Carter Marshall. How are you doing today, lady? I am blessed and highly favored, sis. Listen, it's been so long since I've seen your face, since we caught up. So tell the people about yourself. Well, I'm a child of God, first and foremost. Um, I'm a, a, a native from Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> you know, yes. I got a shout out to my roots. And um, I'm actually um, a sexual trauma restorative counselor. Mm. You know, I work with survivors of sexual assault. And, um, and I'm also a certified life coach and professional um, coach. And I'm an educator, an author. Um, and I just love working with God's people, building them up, you know, um, training them in discipleship. You know, yeah. I also teach ministry leadership. So sometimes I ask myself, it's not what I don't do. I mean, what I do is what you don't do. Mm. <laughs> you know, I just try to do everything to be visible. Yeah. You know, to be visible, to stay in the work, stay committed, um, you know, and, and doing the work for the Lord. Yes. I love it. A true Renaissance woman. We just, we just do everything. I love Amen. it. Amen. I love it. So I have a question I ask all my experts and that is in your opinion, what does it mean to be a queen that's thriving? Someone that doesn't stop. Yeah. Someone that doesn't stop. And, um, and to be a queen, you can't be shy about it. Mm, come on you can't be shy about it you have to be um bold and firm in what it is you're doing yeah and you know and keep moving with that tenacity that just serve you know you know not only serve the people but serve god and don't and be very unapologetically about it yeah. you know so that's what's being a queen you know you have to represent represent the people who are that came before you that set that that pace for you because you got to pay homage to them but mm. then you also have to represent those who are looking to you for yeah. guidance that's going to come behind you. So to me, that's where that queen comes from. But then the thriving is that you just can't stop mm. and you got to be bold in it and you got to be unapologetic in the direction that you're going in your life and just make sure that you move forward with purpose. Yeah. You know, because if you move without purpose, you just moving and taking up space and making yourself tired. Mm. <laughs> you know? mm. So to me, you got to be, you know, you have to be committed. You know, you have to be authentic and, you know, you have to be unapologetic 
And that's what it means to me to thrive as a queen. Yes. Yes. Like that's a (laughs) mic drop. Yes. All of that. Seriously. You definitely have to understand who you are and whose you are. And that purpose piece. Every, I told people, I, every year I set a theme for the year. 2021 is the year of intentionality. And I said, God, I'm not doing anything unless it has purpose with the purpose and on purpose. That's it. Right. Absolutely. So I absolutely love, love what you said. And so I really wanted to have you on the show because September is National Recovery Month. And we both can understand what uh, addiction and the role of addiction plays in the life of um, children. So I want to dive into that conversation about what it was like being a child of an addict. Hmm. Um, well, it wasn't always easy for me to say, um, at some point in my life, but it was, it was difficult. It was embarrassing. Yeah. Um, because when you are, um, a child of an addict, especially depending on how that addict live, you can't hide from that, Mm, you know? So that becomes a reflection of you, Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and whatever issues that they're dealing with, you're dealing with it too. You carry the shame of whatever that life that they live, um, um, is causing them and you, um, and if they, and it's like a double edged sword, because if they're not there, Mm-hmm. then you have that that shame that just comes with not having your mom in your yeah. life yeah. you know and then if they are there in your life then your circle your friends your family mm-hmm. get to see them mm-hmm. you know and regardless of how you are trying to live you know the, the you know the footprint you're trying to make in the sand it doesn't really matter yeah. when you have a mom um you know as an addict because that seems to overshadow everything that you do, you know, and, you know, and as you say, as a child, I'm thinking through the lens of a child, yeah. you know, um, I've grown to, to know better, but coming up, that's the way I felt. It's like, I walked in this, um, continuous cycle of shame, yeah. you know, um, guilt, you know, because everything that I did to try to better myself, I also felt guilty for it, mm. you know, because the more I move forward, the further I I separated from my mom, you know, and that was, I felt guilty because it was like, I should not leave her behind. Yeah. You know, and as miserable and as hard as it was, I felt my rightful place was still to be there with her, whether it's in the gutter with her, you know, whether it's in the streets with her, that was my place um, to be with her. And I was the only child for 18 years. Mm. So the worst part of her addiction was something that I experienced by myself before my brothers and sisters came. Yeah. You know, so that was just a level of, of, of responsibility that um, I still carry today, but I do it differently, mm-hmm. you know, but, um, but it was, it was difficult. I, it was, I had aunts that was, that were loving and were always supportive. Um, I had my grandparents who raised me, mm-hmm. you know, um, but that comes with its own stigma. Yeah. When you got friends, they are raised by their mom and dad as mm-hmm. imperfect as they were, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but it's like when you had events, it was your grandparents that showed up, yeah. you know, and, um, but it, it was, it was, it was difficult. Yeah. You know, it was difficult. And then 
if you happen to run into someone that don't know that didn't know your life, then now you're living that impot- as an imposter because mm-hmm. you don't want them to know. So now you're walking around lying, you know. So it was it was difficult. It was it was it was really difficult and challenging. Yeah, um, you know, to live with my mom. Yeah, you you touched on so much, and I'm sitting here like, God, that was my life. <laughs> that guilt and shame is so real you know I, I shared on a podcast interview that I was doing about you know how writing allowed me to create fantasy worlds about who my parents were you know so I I connect with the feeling of like school events parent teacher conference mom and dad ain't showing up but you know grandma showing up grandpa showing up and then people asking and then you creating this lie like you know I used to tell people oh my daddy a CIA agent he on <laughs> you know you come up with these these stories out of that guilt and shame and then I wholeheartedly relate to okay I'm gonna go do my thing I'm Mm -hmm. gonna go live my life but then deep down inside feeling like dang I really just left my mom right I really just left my mom I really just left my dad like how did I do that and feeling horrible about it Mm -hmm. and then you turn around and you backtrack and you're like all right I'm gonna go get them only for the cycle to continue and then you're feeling like so now here I am stressed all over again after I just made the decision to lead a stress right but it's I always say I feel like children are addicts they they deep down inside it's like they see their parents as these heroes right so it's like Mm -hmm. your 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 mom your dad like I like regardless of how messed up jacked up you are <laughs> like your mom and dad that's right that's and it's right. hard to kind of separate the two so mm-hmm. I mean everything you say I was like ah this is my life <laughs> in my life and so let me ask you had your aunts mm-hmm. growing up how was what was womanhood like for you because I feel like when it's your mom that's the addict and you're a daughter it's, it can be difficult to navigate womanhood because you really don't have that much of a blueprint right. of what it's supposed to look like. So talk, talk to us about that. Um, well, at one time I was a mess. <laughs> you know, I made some very stupid mistakes yeah. um, because I was looking for that security, that bond um, in the wrong places. Yeah. You know, um, you know, because there's a need that your mom provides and mm-hmm. no one can provide that you know so I became rebellious mm. I became angry yeah you know and I walked around with this chip like I had to forever um prove myself you yeah. know and it became a mission to to be not like her mm-hmm. and that's a burden that no child or no young woman should should carry mm-hmm. you know so um and then growing up in you know in the area where she was it's like, although people probably didn't know or didn't care, but I still felt like I was always a reflection of her. Yeah. You know, so I almost did stupid things on purpose mm. just to carve out some little individuality for myself. Even yeah. if it was bad, I just needed to do something that I can get in trouble for. Yeah. Because I'm tired of holding my head down for what she did. Let yeah. me hold my head down for something that I did. You know, yeah. and I got, I ran with the wrong crowd for a while. You know, I was drinking a little more than I should at one time, you know, um, you know, so I really had to, you know, put things in perspective, you know, and it's like, 
you know, God kind of showed up for me in that regard because, um, like I said, I was the only child for 18 years. And it was when I was 18 and I, I moved from New York to Maryland to go to school. And then my mom was clean for a very short period of time. She took a job and left and then came back pregnant with my brother. I mean, really pregnant. I mean, it wasn't too, I mean, she wasn't, I don't, I don't think she was home a few months before she gave birth to him. So to this day, there are people I grew up with that believe that he's my son, you know, and it doesn't help that we all look just alike. But um, but that was a, um, a time in my life I had to pivot. Yeah. You know, and, um, and it kind of forced me into something that I really was not prepared for. Mm. you know I'm just like finally leaving you know New York so I can go to Maryland with one of my aunts mm -hmm. you know um, who always been a, a very good positive role model with just her family the structure and being there for my cousins and all of that and um, we used to joke considering them the Cosby family you know <laughs> but um, but I was excited to move yeah and to be part of that family you know and then she comes home and then you know um, she's pregnant, you know, so it's like the plans had to change and I had to kind of pivot now because when she came back home, she was strung out, Yeah, you know, and then now I know she got this baby and what's going to happen, you know? So once again, in my mind, in poor preparation, I tried to commit to relationships that I really wasn't ready for, but what I was trying to do in my, um, undeveloped mind mature to mature you know maturity wise is that I'm trying to build this family just in case I had to get them you know and yeah. um and it wasn't the it wasn't the smartest move for me you know because it, it was, resulted in failed relationships you know mm -hmm. um marriages at a young age but I mean I knew why I did it you know and um and I'm not gonna apologize for why I did it because yeah. that was just the space I was in at that time you know, and I just, you know, with me being the preparer that I was forced to be in, for me to be that provider that I was forced to, that role I was forced to assume when I really wasn't ready, then without the the guidance, as you spoke about, of what it really means to kind of develop into a woman, yeah. you know, what it really means to take responsibility the right way, mm -hmm. you know, with the right guidance, I started making this stuff up myself, you know, and I made some stupid mistakes. You know, and then a lot of times you look at people, they feed you only what they want you to see and what mm, they want you to know. Yeah. And, and if you really don't know them, you start to emulate a life that you see that's not necessarily a life they live. Yeah. You know, so it's cool. Well, she got a drug dealer and she's living good. So why not I do it? Yeah. You know, yeah. she got an older man and she don't want for nothing. Hey, so why shouldn't I do it? Yeah. You know, ain't nobody going to tell me no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so those are the stupid mistakes that I made. So it was it was difficult, but when I had my aunts, um, neither one of them were close. You know, they didn't live like right there. So mm -hmm. to be with them, I had to leave that atmosphere, and it took a while before that was able to happen. You know, so for 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 some point, it was just conversations on the phone and. Um, a lot of times when I did something stupid and my grandmother called them and they tried to talk some sense into me, <laughs> you know, and then it was inviting me for weekends, yeah. you know, um, you know, and things like that. So they tried and I tried as much to pull from them that I could. But, um, when I say God blessed me with my grandmother, um, she was relentless when it came to making sure 
that I stayed on track. You know, she gave me a little bit of wiggle room, but it did not last long. <laughs> you know? And that, and, and that kind of helped me. And it was real because when other people got to hang out, she was like, no, you come up in this house, you know? And when people got to do things that I wanted to do, no, you're not doing that. And I'm like, why are you so hard on me? But she seen something. Mm -hmm. And when matter of fact, I put like this, she seen today. Come on. When I didn't know today existed. Yeah. Yeah. Because if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be who I am right now. So she already seen this. God was hung. God was already mapping this thing out for me. Uh -huh. And I'm fighting it every step of the way. But he already put something in her mind, a vision in her head. And she was doing what he was telling her to do. And I was kicking and fighting. But now I know because she's seen this life that I'm living right now. And I didn't even think it was possible. Yeah, yeah. Listen, we thank God for the grandmas because I'm telling you, my grandmother was the same way. I mean, she was tough as nails when it came to my education. She no, and we could have these conversations now. And and like you said, she saw it. She knew out of all my mom's kids, yeah, Leah gonna be the one to make it. She gonna be the one that's gonna be all right. She gonna do something with herself. Like, but I gotta keep her on the straight and narrow because I think as a child of an addict. We assume, we assume the parental role. Right. So it's like, my mom can't be mom, so I'm going to be mom for her. Right. And then we take on this role of having to be her advocate at the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. having to, like, And like you said, not being prepared. So I'm forced into a role that I'm not really wanting, first That's and right. foremost. But I'm also not prepared for it. And exactly. so then we become, I feel like it's almost like we grow up very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we become these adults where it's like, yeah, no, I don't got time. And then <laughs> we so short fuse and no pace because we've had to navigate these waters at a very, very young age. So, I, yeah, I get it. We, we hear. We hear. Yeah. And then for a long time, sis, even when you are adult, you're playing a role mm -hmm. until you really figure out what it is to be an adult. Yeah. You know, so even when I had the... Um, when I, when I tried as much as I could to emotionally, emotionally, you know, disconnect, when I got old enough and I was able to be on my own, I was modeling the behaviors of what an adult looks like, mm -hmm. you know, um, how an adult should act. I yeah. was modeling that, but, um, I didn't consider myself as such, Yeah, you know, which is why I think the other things that, that came into my life now, um, that wasn't the best decisions that I made is because I was still a child at heart. Mm -hmm. You know, and sometimes I, I look for opportunities to just just still a moment to be a child. You yeah. know, even now, I really shouldn't be because now I'm grown. I got a job. I got a, uh, yeah. an apartment. I got a brother and sister that's looking up to me. So you're not or you shouldn't be afforded the opportunity to act like a fool, you know, but yeah. that rebellious part of me, I, I did it sometimes anyway, yeah. <laughs> you know, because I was modeling what it meant to be an adult before I actually assumed that role. Yeah. 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 I love it. I love it. But I want to, I really want to switch gears because you're also an author yes. and a blogger. <laughs> Tell us about that journey. Oh, wow. Well, thank you to the authorship to Tamara Mitchell Davis. Um, um, that book anthology was the real, was the first time yeah. that I shared the story of my mother and myself. Mm -hmm. um and that in that type of platform you know mm -hmm. that was the first time that I went through all of the emotions <laughs> um to actually get that story on paper mm 
-hmm. You know, I did the leg work and the only two I was really concerned about was my brother and sister because it was a truth that they never knew. Yeah. You know, and um, and I and I did all of that and, and even right in certain parts of the book had me go back into this life um, that I tried so hard to disconnect from, mm -hmm. you know, so it was it was an, a journey for me, you know, but it was a beautiful realization in it yeah. during that process because, um, you know, being, you know, an author and also the, the, um, the public figure that I have become in media with, you know, and then my spiritual, you know, all these things that I've did, the, you know, the education and the job, that status didn't really fit with the type of life that I lived, mm -hmm. you know, and instead of me seeing it initially, as I see it now, it was absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah. Because the fact that I got through all of that, for one, you got to give glory to where glory needs to be, mm -hmm. number one. And then also that's strength. That's not a weakness. Yeah. You know, but it took me a long time and it took that writing process and that journey to transition from being ashamed of something to really owning exactly what that something is, you know, yeah. and my mom and dad in their perfection is because of the changes and the, the, the things that we went through as a family, the things that I witnessed them go through. The, um, the circumstances and situations that their choices put me in yeah. is a direct res result of who I am today. Yeah. And that writing journey allowed me to be bold in that, you know, and, um, and it was a, it was a tremendous experience, you know, and then working with the ladies, um, that shared similar, you know, journeys, um, and just to get through that and to break through those walls, I mean, it was, it was a beautiful thing. And like you, I've always written, I could, I got poems coming out my behind, you know, I mean, but they were cute, yeah. you know, some yeah. of them were militant, you know, yeah. um, you know, women, that little activist in me, you know, and all of that, but to really talk about who I was, yeah, you know, and, um, you know, and, and the real up, up close and personal life of who, how I lived in Brooklyn, New York. That was that was that was different because that was not the same person that you see when you go into my website and see me smiling, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and when you go on my social media, it was such a, a split. But what that book helped me do, uh, telling that story, helped me bring it together where it should be. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's who I am, yeah, you know, yeah. and um, and it ain't no, it's nothing to apologize for. So that was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then the blog is just my continuous communication with the people of God. Yeah. That's my transparency when I talk to someone and, and he make a deposit in me to stop keeping that stuff to myself. I just put it out there, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and it's, it's just like a continuous, you know, it's almost therapeutic, Yeah, you know, and it's a beautiful thing, like sit down with you. I'm sure I probably blog about this, but to sit down with you, <laughs> I love it. you know, or to go to church or to, or to talk to someone and you hear something yeah, resonates in your spirit or to witness what God is doing in someone's life. No, you got to share that stuff. And that's what yeah. my blog is all about, you know, and some things, some things I write is going to ruffle some feathers, like, you know, with this Bill Cosby thing, but I'll leave that alone. But, you know, but that's just who I am. Yeah, yeah. And that's just my walk, you know, and that's what that blog represents. So it's just, it's just a way to allow me to continue to live in my truth.
you know, because it took me a long time to get here and not be ashamed of it. And that blog is just a way for me to continuously be transparent. I love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. (laughs) Love it. So I want to dive into this last piece before we close out. You are a sexual trauma restored counselor. Yes. Talk about that. How did, how did we get into that specifically? Well, when I started my um, business, Unspoken Courage, um, it lived in me a couple of years before I actually launched it. I I launched it three years ago. Um, And the goal was to just be a safe space where I can work with survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence, Mm -hmm. because I've been an advocate um, for about almost 30 years now. Mm. You know, and I am a survivor of, of sexual assault, having been assaulted at 13. Um, and since 17, I've been working, if it wasn't a shelter, it was a hospital or it was some type of halfway house. Um, when I was in New York, I linked with, um, you know, the, the New York courts and I became a court appointed advocate for abused and neglected children. That's just what I did. And I've always done it as a, on a volunteer basis. And I dealt specifically with trauma response. And crisis mm. intervention. So it's like once the crisis is over, it's disconnected, you know. But I understand that there is a lot more to that. Yeah. You know. So what my business did was it it opened that door so that I can work with the survivor throughout the entire process, mm-hmm. meet them where they at, whether they were just assaulted or they were assaulted mm-hmm. a long time ago, and maybe something happened that triggered it, and they're dealing with it. But I wanted to go with them, go go through the entire process with them, um, you know. But then mm-hmm. becoming first a licensed minister, and then ordained, I started aligning myself with my church, um, and then just seeing different people, you know, counseling either relationship grieving. Um, But recently I decided that I needed to kind of pivot back to why I opened Unspoken Courage again. I mean, to begin with, and that's to work with sexual survivors, you know, sexual assault survivors and um, domestic violence um, survivors and their families. So I just did a complete rebranding. So I'm like going back to the bases right now. And, um, you know, so I'm really focusing my time in working with survivors, developing programs that really help them get through, as you and I were talking about, the next step past surviving. Yeah. I mean, because as a survivor, I know how it feels to be a survivor, but that's not what it is, Mm -hmm. you know, and we learn to live in that mode of survivorship. Yeah. You know, and we deal with the depression, we deal with the intimacy issues, we deal with the trust issues, we deal with all of that because we survived mm-hmm. and that should be enough. Mm-hmm. And it is not enough. Yeah. It is not enough. And the, the few clients that I have counseled over the years, sometimes when they come to me, they're not ready to deal with me because they're not ready to, to get past the, the different barriers that comes with um, actually seeking counseling for that. You know, like one lady was telling me it was difficult because of her faith. And I'm like, you're not cheating on God because you're getting counseling. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> you know? Come I mean, on. you're not cheating on him. That's part of it. You know, so yeah. that just helped me kind of help me re- rebrand and, you know, start my rebranding and um, developing this program where I can really get first, get the survivors to a place to kind of break those barriers down. Before we even start the counseling itself, let's just strip away all the stuff 
that has gotten in the way of you just moving forward. Yeah. You know, that's getting you stuck in the satisfaction of just surviving. That's mm. no way to live. You know, the things that you deal with because of your trauma is not something that you should learn to deal with. Yeah. You know, to truly live and to live authentically. Oh, we got to work with stripping that stuff down. Yeah. You know, so that's what I'm kind of dedicating, you know, and refocusing my energy on right now is getting back to the basis of why I opened up my uh, my business and all of the stuff that I've learned, even with the sisters that I was on a project, you know, pro- the book project with listening to their stories, listening to their journeys, you know, and I took all of that in and it was a um, like a, a thread again, you know, amongst a lot of them. Yeah. It's just that, that, that journey of struggling through the, the thing that we call life until mm-hmm. we get it. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't really have to be that hard. Yeah. You know, um, and you can't do it alone. <laughs> you Come know? On. So, you know, so not only does my program, you know, really help you work at systematically stripping all that stuff away. Um, and that's why I call the program Breaking Free to Be Me. Mm. You know, and it's it's, you know, we start with, you know, um hearing me. You know, and that's that's that story piece. If if you want me to hear you, then you need to be bold enough to tell me your story. Yeah. Because if you can't tell me, then how can we work past that? Mm. You know, and then we just go through all the stuff. So I don't want to give it all away, but that's the, <laughs> those are the systematic steps we get. And then I'll fast forward to the last step, which is breaking free. Mm. You know, and with that last step is once we strip you away from all of that stuff that, that's been holding you down. And, you know, and it's, and it's, a, it's a six month process at the beginning because we do a lot, you know. Yeah. And once you get to that place where you can finally admit and finally be ready mm-hmm. to actually take the step towards true restoration, then we can start the healing process. Yeah. You know, I mean, and uh, and that's what this that's what this uh you know, this, this program is about, and I'm, I'm excited about it. You know, I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm excited for you. And it sounds absolutely, one, it sounds amazing, but it also is needed. You know, I had a conversation with somebody the other day and I said, you know, there's two stories that people tell themselves, the story they create created about the truth Mm -hmm. and then the truth, right? Like, so, and many of us are stuck in the place of the story I created about mm-hmm. the truth you know mm-hmm. and instead of the truth and God revealed that to me because I'm I'm writing and releasing my eighth book about my dad mm-hmm. and he revealed that how I created this fantasy father to mm-hmm. avoid the truth about right. who my father really was mm-hmm. um and so I love it I think that these things are necessary because we gotta push past being stuck and really walk in the boldness and the unapologetic about who we are and who God created us to be. Amen. And you know what, sis, you said something. I don't know if you remember when you were helping me as my clarity coach <laughs> with that book um, is about my me and my mother and myself. But if, I don't know if you remember that I said that my second book was going to be about my dad. Mm-hmm. And the name of that book was going to be When Your Hero Joins the Other Side. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And I was saying that because throughout the entire time when I was young and my mom was really, really strung out, my dad wasn't, you know, but it was towards the end of her life, you know, because she got sick as well, that he got strung out. 
And yeah. I'm like, what are you doing? I mean, you're supposed to be my rock, you know? Yeah, yeah. And you're supposed to be the opposite of the type of life that I live. You are my escape, you know? And it's like, and now you are now coming to you. I'm older now. I'm a woman, you know, I'm about to get married. I need something totally different from you. But now you acting like she did, mm. you know? And it's like, you know, but I'm, I'm glad that you said that. And I changed my mind about writing that book mm. because that's putting too much on him. He was just a man that was going through it. That's and when he was there for me, when he was there for me, and when he wasn't, I was there for him. Mm-hmm. So I'm not holding him, holding him hostage to this image that I had in my head. You know, I have my expectations of what he should have been. Yeah. Like a lot of us have expectations of what our parents should be. But you know what? They don't always live up to the expectation. They don't. So if they don't live up to the expectation, you can't beat them down for it. What you need to do is thank God for the time that he was there because that entire childhood, he was that rock, Mm -hmm. you know, and it wasn't until I was grown, married, you know, um, a lot more together (laughs) than I was when my mom was here is when he crumbled and I was able to go in and take care and do what I need to do. But it was because of what he instilled in me during my most weakest time that when he got there, I was able to, to step up. So I'm glad that, you know, you just made me think about that when you talk about <laughs> the book. And that's probably why I didn't even mention that book because I'm going to write a story about him, but I'm not going to say when my hero joins the other side, because I think the, the, the thought process I had behind writing that book is really not fair to his memory. Yeah. Because he was a good man and he was a good father. And even when he <laughs> wasn't at his very best, yeah. He was still the best to me. Yeah. You know, so it, it would it would take away from who he was for me to say when he never joined, he never joined the other side. You know, I mean, he just, you know, he went through, you know, God wrote that story. I had nothing to do with that. Yeah. You know, so um, you know, but I just needed to plug that. I, I love to it. Plug that in. And that's just all growth, you know. Yes. I mean? All growth and learning. And it's been two years now since I wrote that book. And I done started writing that 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 his story a long time. And I kept stopping and I was wondering why. Cause it was the spirit in which I was writing it didn't mm-hmm. resonate with my spirit and God didn't like it. Mm-hmm. But he's been chastising me for a couple for about a year on that right now. So I'm taking the book in a total direction. And he hasn't told me the, 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 the name of it yet. Um, but I'm sure it's gonna come to me. But what he did tell me what I wasn't gonna call it. Yeah, I love <laughs> so that. It. We, so that we, we're clear on that. Thank you, Jesus. So I love <laughs> it. Well, you know what? Since this has just been such an amazing conversation, and I thank you. Like I appreciate your own healing, your own growth, your own transparency. Since the day we met, I've seen yes. so much change in you and growth in you, and I am so proud of you. And so, before I let you go, tell the people how they can connect with you. Okay, you can go to my website, um, unspokencourage.com. I'm also on Facebook, Unspoken Courage. Um, If you want to learn about my program I was telling you about, I'm on Facebook, um, Breaking Free to Be. And um, I'm also on um, LinkedIn, Unspoken Courage. And um, what's the other one? Instagram, Unspoken Courage, one word, so. I love it. I love it. Well, y'all listen, y'all better connect. You know, I only bring the best to hate Queen Pride. <laughs> so, I thank you so much for coming on the show, sis. I really do. 
It was my pleasure, sis. It was my pleasure. And I'm proud of you too, setting the page, setting, <laughs> setting the way for us. <laughs> I want to be like you when I grow up. You thrive, queen, thrive. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Whew. This one was deep, y'all. I told you it was. I told you this was going to be a heavy topic because, man, when we talk about addiction, yeah, it's deep. <laughs> it's really, really deep. But listen, shout out to my sister, the my soul twin, Dr. <laughs> Mecca Carter Marshall. Listen, I thank you so much, sis, for really coming through the Hey Queen Thrive and being so transparent about your story, you know, and your journey. Um you you are an amazing woman because of what you've gone through. And I just have to say that publicly. I've said it probably to you privately, but I have to say that to you publicly. Um, because it's not easy, you know, from one child of an addict to another. <laughs> it's not easy. It's not easy to overcome, you know, those wounds. It's really not. And I salute you. I do. I salute you. My, I take my hat off to you. Because you're doing the work. And not only are you doing the work, but you're helping others do the work. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. Again, y'all, y'all already know what I'm going to tell you to do. Make sure you are connecting with her. Make sure you are following her on social medias. Get, join her Facebook group. Um, and really, you know, connect with her. Because, again, like I always say, you might not need her today, but you never know when you might need her. Right? And so, or you may know somebody that needs what she has. So this is why I bring these guests onto the show. And so, um, <laughs> we're just going to jump into Thriving Nuggets. So this, this episode is Thriving Nuggets. I really wanted to focus on how do we begin to repair the relationships, right? How do we begin to repair the relationship, um, after it has been broken because of, of because of addiction, right? So e either you may have been the addict, or your loved one is the addict, right? So how do we how do we prepare how do we repair those relationships, right? Or even begin to find closure, um, because one thing I could say from my own personal experiences, um, it's that relationship with the addict is a difficult one. It's a it's a it's a difficult one. Um, and, you know, for me personally, my mom, my relationship with my mom was has always been probably the more difficult relationship to have than it was with my dad. Um, because my dad, when he was in active addiction, he wasn't really around. Uh, so, you know, I kind of saw him um, under the influence a few times, you know, and even in those few interactions with him, were they healthy? No. Right. But when he was sober, oh, that was my dude that was my guy. Like real talk. That was my dude. Um, with my mom, it, it cut a whole lot deeper because I think that mothers are the, the starting point of what womanhood is supposed to look like. Right. So <laughs> when your mother is an addict, it's hard because you actually have to switch roles. Right. So you become the mother and she's the child. Um, so what happens once sobriety has set in and you are um, trying to work through that relationship. That's what we're going to talk about in Thriving Nuggets. So number one uh, in how you can begin to repair the relationship that's broken by addiction is um, set realistic expectations. So a newly sober client or parents 
or a spouse or loved one may be feeling positive about the progress they've made in early sobriety and ready to ready for a fresh start in a relationship. They may not be focused on the past where there where likely was a par- pattern of several years of negative behavior in the relationship. These issues cannot be resolved immediately, even if the person offers a sincere apology for past actions. Any action taken uh, toward rebuilding the relationship it is a victory, and these small steps need to be celebrated. So, uh, realistic expectations. You know, we we get excited when we see our loved one get clean and sober. I know I have when I used to see my mother and father go through sobriety. Um, and you want to easily. It it becomes like almost second nature. Like you just jump into ready to have a full-on relationship, but you also have to remember they're still an addict, right? And so the path to, or the process of sobriety and recovery also includes relapse, right? Because there may come a time where they easily relapse. I've watched my mother do it several times, right? And so when you set those realistic expectations, you put yourself in a position to continue to protect you while trying to rebuild or repair the broken relationship. All right, rebuilding trust will take time, right? So after a pattern where trust has been portrayed and likely several times, rebuilding it is going to be a lengthy process. Someone who is living with an addiction will always put feeding their disease first to ensure that they keep a steady supply of their drug of choice they are prepared to lie, cheat, steal if it means they can get t- to their next fix or drink. This pattern is also used to hide the addiction or the extent of it from others and to keep it going. So understand that <laughs> you're not going to be able to trust trust your loved one overnight, right? Trust is going to take time because they failed you several times, right? It's going to take you a minute to get to a place where you wholeheartedly trust your loved one. So don't beat yourself up if you find yourself in situations where (laughs) it's like, I trust them, but I don't trust them, but I trust them, but I don't trust them. That's okay. Know that it's going to take time. Okay. Uh, Number three, learn healthy communication methods. So communication is a two-way street, and it includes both talking and listening. Many people, when they're listening to someone else speak, are not really hearing what the other person is saying. They are waiting for a break in the conversation so that they can make their next point. This is not really the best atmosphere in which to have a healthy discussion, right? So I always say, and and I've heard it several times in my life, that many of people... uh, when we communicate, we listen to reply, right? We don't actually listen, right? So again, like it's saying, I'm going to listen enough to wait for you to pause and then I'm going to jump in and say what I need to say. So we actually don't hear what the person is saying. So if you're going to repair this relationship or begin to repair this relationship, develop healthy communication patterns and habits, right? Actually hear what the person is saying and not just... um. <laughs> Oh, let me just wait for them to shut up so I can jump in and say what I need to say. Okay? Number four, 
eliminate unhealthy relationships. So not all relationships in in a love in that your loved one's life are healthy and positive ones. The bad ones won't contribute to a healthy recovery. In fact, they'll end up doing just the opposite. They'll become a reason for your loved one to start start to slip towards a relapse. People in a uh, in your loved one's life who are still using drugs, alcohol, no longer have a place in his or her life. Neither do those who are and have been abusive towards them, right? So one of the things when I was working in addiction, I used to hear all the time is that you have to stay away from people, places, and things, right? So you have to stay away from when you're in recovery, you have to stay away from the people, right? That are doing what you used to do that you're trying to not do no more, right? So that means if I was an alcoholic, I, I don't need to go hang out at the bar. That's temptation, right? I need to stay away from things, right? So things looks like your triggers. Most addicts, right, have a trigger, right? Whether it's rejection, whether it's abandonment, whether it's just disappointment, whether it's a discouragement, right? So you have to come up with a coping skill or a plan, right, to manage that thing. And then, you know, places, again, I can't go hang out at the old sports bar that I used to hang out at, right? I can't go hang out at the, you know, the neighborhood block party. I can't go around certain uh, parts of the hood, you know what I'm saying, where I know my dealer is at and I'm an easy, like, you have to remove people, places, and things. You got to eliminate those unhealthy relationships if you're really trying to repair um, the broken relationship because of addiction. Okay. Number five, try to separate the disease from the person. You wouldn't blame a loved one if they got, um, another chronic relapsing illness. Addiction is a disease that affects the way a person thinks and reasons. Once it takes hold, satisfying the urge to use or to drink comes first and people will do anything to get their drug of choice. Addiction has no logic, morals, or reason. It only wants what it wants. Whoo! Let me tell you something. This this one in particular took years for me to get to. Years. Because for a very long time, I never knew how to separate the disease of addiction from who my mother and father were. For a very long time. I saw them as one and the same. And let me tell you what was such a changing moment for me was when I began to do my own work as a child of of two addicts and to really unpack those feelings of abandonment and rejection and not feeling good enough and not being adequate and and all of that. (laughs) When I really started to do that work, I began to see my parents as individuals, broken individuals, trying to navigate this thing called life. That's literally how I see them today. But years ago, oh yeah, no. (laughs) I couldn't see them as that. I couldn't see the addict versus my mom, the addict versus my father. No, they were one and the same to me. And that was because of, of the damage they had done, right? So I say you can get to that place in really repairing and mending your relationship when you begin to do your own individual work. Because when you begin to do your own individual work, and I say it all the time, 
heal, healing people hear differently, see differently, and do differently, right? So when you start doing your own work, you no longer hear the voice of your mother or the voice of your loved one, the addict, the same way, right? You no longer see them <laughs> the same way. You no longer do things in interacting with them the same way because now you're working on yourself. Just saying. <laughs> All right, next tip. So put a stop to discussing of past events. At, some, at a certain point, decide that you're going to have to stop making your loved one pay for the events that occurred in the past. Neither one of you can go back and change them, nor does holding them over their head do anything for your current relationship. Accept what happened, and if you have received an apology and or the sincere offer to make amends, decide to close the door on the issue forever. Never bring it up again, no matter how hurt or upset you become later on. It needs to remain resolved. I think this one is critical. Because when you make the decision that you want to mend the relationship, heal the brokenness, repair the relationship, right? You got to close the door on the past. You got to let the past be the past. You can't keep reminding your loved one who's an addict that they're an addict. Listen, they know. They live with themselves every day. They beat themselves up every day. They know what they're doing to their body every day. Okay, I tell you, from experience, when my mother was recovering from a stroke almost a year ago, listen, <laughs> the, I, I used to hear this woman crying every single day because she came to the realization that she caused this damage to her body. She caused this damage to where she's at in her life, right? So it was no sense in me constantly reminding her because she was reminded every day. Hence the reason why many of them choose to stay high or, or under the influence of something because they don't like the reminder. So as the loved one who wants to repair that relationship, shut it down. There's no point in constantly reminding them. Again, they're aware. So you got to make a resolve within yourself that we're just not going to keep having this conversation and leave it at that. And then the last tip that can help you to repair your relationship um, that was broken due to addiction is start living in the here and now. Deal with current issues as they come up. Allow yourself to get angry, frustrated, or whatever. Have all the human emotions you normally have. Your loved one who is in recovery is not a fragile human being. Do express good feelings too. When issues come up, deal with them promptly and then move on. So, Address what needs to be addressed when it needs to be addressed, <laughs> right? Let's, and don't keep digging up the past, right? Deal with life according to where you guys are today. Listen, I told you this was going to be a heavy, heavy episode, but I hope that you guys walk away with some steps and some tools on if you have a loved one in your life who's an addict, whether they're in recovery or they're still out there, one, let me let you know I'm praying for you, praying for them just like I pray for my mother um, because God can and God will, right? <laughs> but also you heal so that you can begin to have a better relationship with that person if you choose to, okay? 
So this concludes another episode of Hey Queen Thrive. Listen, come back again next week for another Power Pack episode with another amazing guest. I love each and every one of you. Have an amazing rest of your day, and we will talk soon. Peace and blessings.